Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Hey, uh, welcome out to the gathering of Reach Life Church again. Um, If it's your first time here or we don't know each other, my name is Terry, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We are in the third message in our journey through the book of Exodus, and we're picking up in chapter 3 today. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, we'll get there in just a little bit. We have been seeking wisdom from God uh, through His Word on how to navigate difficult seasons of life. Life uh, tends to be we're either in a time of difficulty or we're going into a time of difficulty or we're just coming out of a time of difficulty. Uh, and so we've been looking for wisdom from God through His Word on how to, how to navigate those things, particularly what we've titled Already Not Yet Times. And as Christians, we know that um, when there's some things of us that are, are already true, you know, in Christ Jesus, we've been made righteous uh, before God if, if Jesus is your Savior, and uh, that's already taken place. But we are not yet what we will be, and so here we are in the meantime in the already not yet. And so... We've learned by studying um, God's dealings throughout. Uh, we learned this in Genesis and in John's and in the book of Acts uh, when we studied those as well. But even already in Exodus, we've learned seeing how seeing the, um, the activity of God among the people of God can help us in 2021 to ask the people of God to see what God maybe is doing or see what God would do in us is sometimes easier to see. Um, and so we hope that we can navigate these things well. So far, we've been reminded of the eternal plan of God. If you've been with us, you, might, you may remember that God's eternal plan is His glory by placing people in everlasting relationship with Himself through Jesus. That's God's eternal plan uh, for, for everything else that exists, right? Um, so what we've been studying here is really like, it's like kind of the part of the backstory of Jesus and why Jesus came to the planet to begin with. Um, it's kind of his backstory. And so far in Exodus, just to catch you up, in chapter 1, we've seen the oppression of the Israelites under Pharaoh. And at first, it was um, death by work, you know, much like uh, took place in the Nazi concentration camps. Pharaoh was looking to, to grind them to powder by making them work really hard. And then we saw that there would be outright execution of all the Israelite boys. Then in chapter 2, we saw that some Hebrew midwives, although they had been commanded to kill all the boys as they were being born, they feared God and chose not to follow the king's edict. And so God showed favor on them. There was uh, Then we learned about this one special Hebrew boy who God was going to use as a vital, integral part to his plan in saving the Israelites out of slavery. And that, man's, that uh, boy's name was Moses. His parents uh, trusted God, and they hid him away. As they hid him away, the boy was found by uh, a member of Pharaoh's house, Pharaoh's daughter, and was taken into Egypt as part of the royal family. And so we were like, man, this is it. God said he's going to deliver the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. He has now uh, saved this Israelite leader. He's put him in the house of Pharaoh. This is it. This is delivery. Last week, we learned that it was not, didn't we? We learned that Moses really blew it. Moses ended up uh, 
killing a guy and burying him in the sand. Well, that meant Moses had to flee Egypt, or, or Moses would have ended up buried in the sand too, right? So he had to leave, and that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because God had brought this child into the, the house of Pharaoh, so now all of a sudden, clearly God must have made the wrong choice. I mean, this guy killed a dude and tried to hide it and is now out in the wilderness. Well, clearly God has made a mistake, um, obviously. He's not even in the place where God had put him. He's out in the desert. So I guess that, that's the end. I guess uh, God's plan must have, have fallen through. Moses is going to be relegated to the desert. God's people are going to be relegated to staying in slavery under Pharaoh. You know, I read a quote uh, a few years ago, and man, it really struck me <laughs> because I see it as applying to my own life, and I see it today is applying to the situation that Moses finds himself in. And that quote said, when God put a calling on your life, he already factored in your stupidity. <laughs> yeah. Do you know that's true? That is so true, man. Uh, and I, for one, am very glad <laughs> that it's true, right? God, my, my stupidity is no surprise to the Lord, right? Um, and so how gracious is God? Well, he's gracious enough to let us know him. He's gracious enough to seek us, the undeserving. He's gracious enough to draw us to himself. He's then gracious enough to employ us in accomplishing his eternal plan of drawing people to himself and making them righteous in Christ Jesus. God is so gracious uh, despite our stupidity, uh, my, my stupidity. Uh, so today, uh, we're going to see where Moses, this guy who really messed up, He's out in the desert, and he encounters the real God who is actually there. And we're going to see Moses respond in such a way that is, is very human. Uh, when I see Moses respond this way, I relate to Moses. Maybe you'll be able to relate to, to Moses as well. Um, so that's what we're going to see in chapter 3 today. Again, I hope you're there in your Bibles by now. Let's just read verse 1 of Exodus chapter 3 together. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So let, let's stop there for just a second. So now we see Moses, who was supposed to be the deliverer, right? the anointed one, the chosen one. Deliver God, he's supposed to deliver God's people out of Egypt. But now Moses isn't even in Egypt anymore. Where is he? He's in the wilderness. He's not, how, how can he, he he's not even in, in Egypt as, not only uh, not in the house of Pharaoh, he's not even in Egypt as an additional slave along with his brothers and sisters. He's in the wilderness, man. Right? This is not where he's supposed to be at all. He's not in Egypt at all. There's some dispute on exactly where Horeb or Sinai is, uh, but the scripture tells us it's, it, wherever it is, it's about a three days journey on foot away from where Moses was supposed to be, right? So how can he deliver God's people out of a place that he's no longer in? How's this going to happen? How's Moses going to deliver God's people? Well, here's good news. Moses isn't going to deliver God's people. God is. God is going to deliver God's people. Uh, so let's continue reading to see how this plays out. Uh, man, this, this section of Scripture that we're about to get into, to me, and to, to others, is one of the most profound sections in all the Bible. 
This is crazy stuff. And the more you dig into it, the more there is to dig into it. It's amazing. Uh, We'll scratch the surface this morning. Don't get your hopes up. I'm not saying my preaching is going to be amazing. I'm saying the scripture is amazing. And if you have the opportunity to dig into it, let's pick up in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is burned, uh, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Can we just pause and think of how crazy this would be? God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Let's stop. There's enough there. Let's, let's stop. Um, there's a ton going on in this passage, and I, w- I want to break it down a little bit so we can get a, a more clear picture of what's going on. Verse 2 says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Now, some of you who were part of, uh, been part of our studies in the past, you may be aware, or you may just know this on your own, uh, that when we see, a, we have in, in the Scripture seen an angel of the Lord appear in the Old Testament. But this is not an it's not described as an angel of the Lord, is it? It's described as the angel of the Lord. And we've learned, uh, again, through our studies, that that's a specific title, usually given when um, it's God himself that visits his people. So this is a messenger of God, an angel, a messenger of God who is also God, Okay. Now, now, virtually all scholars agree that Moses is being visited with some sort of manifestation of God himself. That's what's taking place here. Some believe that it's God showing a manifest, manifestation of his glory in the form of fire to Moses, like uh, similarly to how later in the book of Exodus, God is going to uh, manifest his glory in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day to, to lead the people out of the wilderness. Uh, but to me, and by the way, that, that's a very uh, sound and consistent view with the text. If, that, if that's your view, that, that's a solid view of the text. But to me, and from my study, the majority of scholars um, seem to think that there's even more to it that this idea of a messenger being from God, but also being God sounds very familiar. Uh, what these scholars believe and what I believe is happening here is that Moses is experiencing uh, what theologians call a Christophany or a pre-incarnate visitation by Jesus. That is, prior to his being born as Jesus of Nazareth, we have God the Son, the Lord Jesus himself, here talking with Moses in the fire. Reminds me of the the three Hebrew children in the fire. Uh, And there was one like unto the Son of Man. So uh, I'll show you why I believe that about the text. Uh, and about Moses' encounter. First, I'll just ask the question, can Jesus, the Messiah from God, speak as God? Of course, yes, Nancy. He can speak as God because he is God. Amen. Yes. Uh, that's, that's in my notes, Nancy. It says, yes, why? Because he is God. 
Yes. Yes, he can speak as God. And those of you who are following in our church, uh, reading, our daily reading plan, we're, by the way, if you haven't heard of that, we're reading through the New Testament um, together. Just a chapter a day. Jump in. You can jump right in. You don't have to like catch up from January, or what, but just jump right in wherever we are. We were in Colossians this past week, mostly. And in Colossians 1, it's coming up on the screen, it says this. He, this is Jesus, is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, not that, let me stop, not that Jesus, God the Son, was created. Firstborn is a title given he has preeminence over, right? He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We'll get more into that in just a little bit. So, For this messenger from God, uh, from the Lord, is also actually the Lord himself. And so he speaks as God. You'll notice here in this passage that he doesn't say, thus says the Lord, or something like that. He speaks in the first person, doesn't he? He says, I, right? He's speaking in the first person. And we'll we'll get into that when we go to uh, Exodus 13 in a few weeks. But I want you to hear the words of Jude in the New Testament. Jude verse 5 says this. This is crazy. If you've never heard this, now I want to remind you, Jude says, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Do you know that Jesus was the one who led the people out of Egypt? Jesus. This is crazy. It's true, though, right? It's it's in the Word of God here. So whether... whether, um, whether you, you believe that uh, this is God's manifestation of only his glory in the fire, which is fine, or you believe this is the Son of God himself, God the Son himself, um, the point is that Moses is having an encounter with God. Moses is having a, a conversation with the Savior, not only the, the Savior who will save the, the, Egyptian, uh, the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery, but the Savior who will save you and I out of the slavery to our sin. That's who Moses is talking to here today. That's, the point is that God is showing Moses his presence and his power so that Moses will trust God. And man, I, I'm pleading with, with you all today to place your trust in God. Where else are you going to place your trust? Can I just ask the question? <laughs> well, who else is worthy? Right? Moses is, is, is learning from God in, in, the, in the presence here, hearing his voice, seeing what's going on in front of him, that God is unlike anything else. God is trustworthy. I want to show you why you can trust the Lord God. It's for the same reasons that God showed Moses that he's trustworthy. Uh, it's because of who God is and what God is like that you should trust him, that you should love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's continue reading in verse 7 to see, to see these things. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people 
who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So here we see Moses, a guy who, as we mentioned in the opening, has really blown it. Moses has really, really messed up. And he took matters into his own hands. God told, told me to deliver these people. I'm going to do it right now. And he struck a guy down dead and hit him in the sand. Moses really messed up. So now he's out in the desert. Look, question, though, where does Moses meet God? In the desert. In the wilderness. Does, does Moses go to the wilderness to track God down? No. God goes to the wilderness and tracks Moses down, doesn't he? Right? God goes to Moses in the desert. Right? Like out in the wasteland of Moses' bad decisions. God goes to him. God goes to Moses. And God reveals himself to Moses. And God draws Moses near to God. And God draws near to Moses. Um, now, to be clear, just because God draws us near to us, we have to be reminded that we do not approach God as equals, right? What, is, what does God tell Moses? Take your shoes off, Moses. Right? The, the, the ground you're standing on is holy, right? It, it wasn't holy because it's a special piece of ground. It was a normal piece of ground out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere, good for herding flocks only, until God showed up on it. Then it's holy. Take your shoes off. Moses. God makes things holy. God comes down there in the wilderness and he renews his covenant with Moses just like he had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He tells Moses, I will deliver them, God says, right? But Moses, understandably, maybe because of his past failures, he's messed things up. He's not where God has told him he's going to be. How can he deliver God's people if he's out in the wilderness? Understandably, Moses is probably a little doubtful of himself. Um, I get it. And from a human perspective, like I said, it's understandable that he would be in this place of disbelief. And he says, God, who, who, who am I? To, who am I? <laughs> right. Well, indeed. Who are you? God says, um, Moses, this is paraphrase, Terry paraphrase here. Moses, quit looking at yourself. Look at me, God says. I will be with you, he says, Moses. You, you are inadequate, Moses. That's not the point, though. The point is not Moses' inadequacy. It's God's adequacy. Moses, I'm with you. I'm in the desert. You're out here where you're not supposed to be because you messed up, man. But I am with you. I came to you, Moses, remember. And I'm the one who's going to deliver the people out of the hands of the Egyptians. You know, one of the reasons I think that we succumb to fear in our lives or doubt in our lives that God really can use us for his glory 
is because they have such a big picture of our sin. And in some ways, that's good because sin is a big deal. Like it costs Jesus his life. Okay, it's a big deal. But as followers of Jesus, I hope we can know that our sins have been paid for. If our trust is in him, if he's made us new, our sins have been paid for. And so, but I think what happens in the back of our minds is we see who we are. We know our flaws. As much as we try to hide them from ourselves, there they are. Here we are. And our sin and our shortcomings become larger in our view than God in his person and his sufficiency to use us despite our shortcomings. Does that make sense? So when we think that God can't use us, God can't employ us in his magnificent plan to reconcile people to himself through Jesus, it's, if we think that, it's because we've gotten our focus off of God and onto ourselves. We've missed it. So I'd encourage you this morning, if that's your doubt, if you think, man, I've messed up too much. I'm not real, I'm not real sure that I can be part of the family of God, or that, much less that God can use me for his glory. I, w- I would encourage you to focus back on God rather than on your shortcomings. Focus on his sufficiency. Modern and postmodern self-help books would tell you to look within when you're feeling jaded or discouraged, or look within and find guidance and hope for your life. Notice that is not what God tells Moses to do. No, Moses reminds God of who God is. God reminds Moses of who God is, right? Um, And that's what I would encourage us to do today. I told you earlier, um, Moses uh, here is is doubtful, understandably so. And in the next chapter, chapter 4, we find Moses still doubting. Now, remember what he's encountering right now. He's seeing a bush being burned or on fire but not being burned. Arguably, again, I would say he's encountering God the Son. He's definitely hearing from God himself, I will be with you, Moses. I will deliver my people, Moses, through you. Come with me. Let's do this, God says. God doesn't need Moses. We understand that, right? It's God's grace to Moses to use him. Yet here Moses is, in in this instance, still doubting. Um, So in chapter 4, God gives Moses these miraculous signs. You're going to do all these wonders in Egypt. And Moses still doubts. God God shows him a precursor right then. He he makes his hand leprous, and then he heals it right in front of him. Moses still doubts. right? So God says, Okay, I'll give you your brother Aaron as your mouthpiece. Moses still doubts. Even though what what he's got going on here. Again, his mistake is that he's more concerned with his shortcomings than he is with God's power and God's sufficiency to use him in spite of his shortcomings. So rather than go into chapter 4 and more of Moses' doubt, I want us to stay in chapter 3 because I don't want us to doubt. I, don't, I want us to see God in a way that apparently Moses is missing. Um, so let's continue in our text here. Next, God reveals Mo, to Moses something that, as far as recorded history goes, as far as the Bible says, God had never revealed to any human being prior to this event. This is a first-time thing. God tells Moses God's personal name. God reveals not only what he is to Moses, but who he is to Moses. Let's pick up in uh, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? 
what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God has given Moses God's personal name. I mean, what does it mean for God to choose a name for himself? You guys realize God doesn't do anything at random. Nothing. So when he chooses a name for himself to share with Moses, he is conveying something about himself to Moses. Um, It's tied to his nature. He's wanting to reveal something to Moses. Um, he's, He's wanting to reveal his relationship with Moses in a way that had never been done before. Uh, and it's what he's, what he's created us for to begin with. So God's choosing a name and sharing his name is a holy thing. Do you guys realize that God's name is holy? Um, it's taken in, uh, in blasphemy a lot today. I was, I was reminded of uh, some, some very prominent particular blasphemers. Uh, you guys heard of uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce. Now, it's, uh, blasphemer is a strong word, I know. Um, but Jay-Z, you may know, has, has taken on the nickname for himself as Hove. You know what that means? It's short for Jehovah because he calls himself the God of rap. So he's taken God's name upon himself. And his, and his wife, Beyonce, had this tour called I Am. She's taken the name of God on herself. Here you have probably media's most powerful couple in all of history. These are powerful folks taking the name of God for themselves. This is blasphemous. And so as we approach the understanding of the name of God here in our text today, I I don't want us to take it lightly. Um, Let's take God's name, how he wants us to take his name. And I want to show you why we should do that. Uh, don't, let's not take it as the culture does, okay? Uh, the name of God that God gives for himself in the Bible that you see there is the Lord, right? Uh, you may remember we went through some of this in our study of Genesis. By the way, that's still on YouTube. If you haven't checked that out, I would recommend it. Genesis is the backstory of Exodus, right? Um, so the name the Lord sounds pretty generic, and it is. Um, it's only because the translators of the Bible never translated that word. They left it um, as untranslated, and wherever you see the, the word Lord in all capital letters, you know that this, this name we're going to get to is what's behind that name, the Lord. In Hebrew, the name had four letters, Y-H-W-H, right? They didn't have vowels in, in, in that language. And based on how Hebrew letters are pronounced, it was likely pronounced something like Yahweh, something like Yahweh. The Jews as we know, were really afraid of blaspheming God's name. And so when they would come to this in, uh, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. So uh, whenever they came to this name in their reading, they wouldn't pronounce Yahweh. They would pronounce Adonai or my, my Lord, 
And the English versions of our Bibles essentially did the same thing, right? When they came to that in reverence out of the name of God, they said, Lord, in, in all caps. And in a lot of ways, this is kind of unfortunate because it, it kind of obscures God's name, God's personal name, in a way that he had actually made clear. He had, he had revealed to us, um, and he said he wants to be known by it throughout all generations. So the Lord and Adonai doesn't really convey God's name to us. Yahweh is God's proper name. And that, the importance of God's name, this being the personal name of God, can be seen by the sheer amount and frequency of its use. It's used 6,828 times in the Old Testament. That is more than three times as often as the simple word Elohim for God. Three times more in the Scripture, God's personal name, Yahweh, is used. And what this shows is that God's uh, God's aim is not to be known by a generic uh, thing as, as some sort of generic deity who's far removed. He's given us his personal name. He wants us to know him personally. He has a he is a person. He is actually three persons in one being. He has a unique character and an eternal plan. So notice then that God gives three answers when Moses says, "If I go to them and they ask your name, what am, what am I going to say?" God gives three answers in verse fourteen. He says. I am who I am. And then in verse 14, he says, I am, tell them I am has sent me to you. And then in verse 15, it says, the Lord or Yahweh has sent me to you. This is my name forever. So what happens here in this text is an interpretation of God's personal name. He tells you what he means by it. He's interpreting Yahweh for us. The name Yahweh and the name I am are built out of the same Hebrew root word. And Yahweh seems to be used interchangeably here with I am. He says, I am has sent me to you, and the Lord has sent me to you, right? So again, God is revealing as as he never had before his personal name and now the meaning of his personal name, the key is the phrase, I am, especially the phrase, I am who I am. So what does it mean if you ask God, what's your name? And he says, I am who I am. It sounds almost like, don't worry about it, right? But that's not it at all. He wants you to to not worry about it, but he wants you to know uh, who he is. I came across some great thoughts on this question. And um, this, this writer said, think about this. How are humans known? Where do we get our identities? So the answer is through relationships. First, we're known by our families. You know, who's who's your father and mother? Like who where you where do you come from? What are what are your roots? And in the ancient Near East, it would have been who is who is your father? And again, today we still like this is where we get our last names from from our parents. It's part of our identity, it's core to who we are. As we grow and develop our personalities. Uh, we form identity through relationships with one another. People know us. This is so-and-so's friend. Hi, I'd like to introduce you to my coworker, so-and-so. Right? We're known through relationships. And then our identity is tied to what we do for a living. Right? Um, this, this, is, this is Kelly. She's a general manager of a, a manufacturing company. Right? We, we, we know by people by, by what they do as well. So then how are gods in other religions known? 
in ancient Greek or like Norse cultures or modern day earth worship or Hinduism, things like that, their, uh, their deities are known exactly the same way humans are. Through relationships to one another, through the created order, by what they do. This is the God of thunder. Thank you, Thor. This is, uh, this is the, God of, the God of grapes, the God of harvest, you know, th- things like that. Um, and so that's how identity works. It's always relational, how you relate to someone else or the created order or things like that. And that is what makes this thing with how God reveals his name to be Yahweh, the I am to Moses, so incredible. Um, God had previously been known by lots of titles, right? The Deliverer, um, Almighty, the Lord of Hosts, the Provider. But in Exodus, Moses was apparently asking for more. If they ask me your name, God, what is it? He's asking for God's actually actual name, and he got it. His full identity. God condescended to Moses and answered, I am who I am. God didn't refer to a relationship with somebody else or his relationship to the created order or even what he does. He referred to himself. I am who I am. He, re- he pointed to that relationship. Why? Because no other relationship is adequate to describe who God is. He was and is just who he was and is. Right. Moses asked for God's personal name, and again, he, he got it, man. God laid it out. God's name, his revealed identity, I am who I am, ties back to Genesis chapter 1. That tells us God created the heavens and the earth from nothing. There was no other thing. That's what nothing means, no thing. There was only God. And this had to be true that there was no other thing, again, because there was only God. God was the totality of all reality. There was no other pre-existing matter for God to make the, the heavens and the earth with. There was only God. He didn't use anything to make everything, and he spoke and willed everything into existence. Again, as we read about Jesus, all things are made by him and are currently dependent upon him for their existence. Us, we, were made by him and are currently dependent upon him for our existence. Um, So this is who is talking to Moses in our passage today, the I am, Yahweh, the only eternal self-existing one. Can you imagine? The God who is and who created all else is literally speaking to Moses. So I want to pull this theology home. Um, Not only is the I am speaking and revealing himself to Moses, the I am, Yahweh tells Moses, I am with you. This has drastic implications for us today. Um, Kind of will hopefully begin to bring it home to us. I... um, I read some some things by John Piper this week. Uh, he noted several things that that flow or follow from God's name being Yahweh, the I Am. And I'm going to follow his major bullet points kind of loosely, but um, and they're not unique to him, but I like how he laid it out. Um, he said the first thing we should know about God is that God exists. This is what's wrapped up in God's name. 
being Yahweh? Well, that seems kind of obvious. As Francis Schaeffer would say, God is there, right? It may seem obvious, but um, we have to admit, sometimes in the way we live our lives, it's not quite obvious that we truly believe God is there. Uh, Piper gives an illustration. He says, suppose the president of the United States, let me pause. Now, we're, we're very politically diverse in here, so pick your favorite president as I'm reading this, okay? Uh, suppose the president of the United States invited you and a few of your friends to the White House for a reception. As you enter the cozy green room, the president is sitting by the fireplace, and you walk right by him without a glance or a greeting. For the whole evening, you neither look at him, nor speak to him, nor thank him, nor inquire why he called you together. But every time the one reporter asks you if you believe in the existence of the president, you say, of course. You even agree that this is his house and that all this food came from his kitchen, but you pay him no regard. Practically speaking, you act as if you do not believe he exists. You ignore him. He has no place in the affections of your heart. His gifts, not himself, are the center of your attention. And may that not be. May we recognize in our hearts and in our lives that God is there. He, he exists. Well, good news. He's not only there, he's also here. He is here. God is here. And that's what Moses uh, is saying, is seeing really here in our passage today, I hope, and I hope we're seeing it as well, that you and I have been given the opportunity to know God and for God to say, I'm with you. <laughs> what a privilege. We have been given that opportunity. So as we face these like already not yet times in our lives, these difficult times of like, I'm either coming out of a trial or going into a trial, or I'm in a trial. God says, I am with you. As we look out into the future, which is so unknown and unknowable, where else is your anchor going to be? I hope it's going to be with the truth that God says he is with you and that he is not only there, but he's also here. Next, uh, Piper points out that God does not change. Man, this is great news. (laughs) Because his name is the I am. He didn't say, God doesn't say, I'm, I'm going to be, become something someday. God says, I am who I am, right? He doesn't change. Malachi 3, 6 says, I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, remember Jacob is the person whose name was changed to Israel. These are his people in captivity. I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O son of Jacob, are not consumed. So within the name Yahweh, The I am who I am is that God is infinite. He's eternal. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He never becomes less. He never becomes more because there's no such thing as more than God, right? He never learns. He never wavers. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, with him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Well, what does this mean? Our circumstances change. Your personality gets quirky. My personality gets quirky. My wife says, amen. God does not change. Regardless of your circumstance, God is God. He, in fact, there are some things that God can't do. He can't change. God can't sin. He can't lie. He can't cease to be God. He can't be unfaithful because he's God. That's great news. That's great news. So in the swirl of life, man, 
as you're changing, your relationships are changing, your workplace is changing, the world is changing. God is God. He is who He is. He does not change. And He is not only there, He is here. He is with you. It's great news. So to put an emphasis on this, let's finish out the chapter. Pick up in verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, that's Yahweh, right? The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I listen to this language. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of, the, of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has, of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know, God says, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so shall, uh, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. How emphatic is God being? Do, do you hear the, the language of it? God is guaranteeing Moses, based on the reality that God is who God is, I, God says, will do this. This will take place, Moses. This is guaranteed. God said he knows exactly what it will take for Pharaoh to let the people go and that he, God, will do exactly that thing and Pharaoh will indeed let the people go. He's guaranteeing this to Moses. God even tells Moses that the Egyptians will collectively get together gold and willfully get together gold and food and clothing and like give it, heap it upon them on their way out. This is an amazing guarantee from God. But even in this, as this is still chapter 3, I told you in chapter 4, Moses is still doubting. God has guaranteed this thing, and Moses is still doubting. Rather than focus on the one who's telling him to do it, Moses is focusing on himself. God is in the business of the impossible. Do you understand? Moses is like, this is not possible because I, am, I know who I am. And God says, it is possible because I am who I am. Right? So, so let me ask you, man, have you affixed your hope to the I am? Or are you affixing the hope to what you are? Or what your circumstance is? The question before us today is, who is God? Right? And is He worthy of our hope? I, I, I would say He is. Let me, let me finish with a, a couple more brief things. God ha- also has inexhaustible power. Um, since God is the only self-existing one, He doesn't have and he's, uh, he's not drawing his power from any other source. Piper again says, this must mean that God is power. He never needs a backup system. There's nothing for him to plug into. Everything in the universe plugs into him. If he ever shut down, there would be absolute nothingness. In him, we live and move and have our being. He cannot faint or grow weary. 
He is an unending river of life and the source of our strength every morning and will be for all eternity. Can you imagine that this God, this source of life, offers to live and dwell with us? He offers to empower you for living. Listen, if we're grinding along under our own power, we're missing the point of life, man. You're meant to live with God as a source of your life and breath and everything else. You're meant to enjoy Him now and forever, right? So I just want to encourage you, place your hope in the one who has all power. Piper, and I'll just hit these super quick. Piper also says that we can know the truth about God. He's revealed Himself. We've seen that God is loving. He cares for His people. He will rescue them. He is sufficient for them. Piper says that God has drawn near to us, lastly, in Jesus Christ. Again, as Francis Schaeffer said, God is not only there, but He has not been silent. He has revealed Himself to us. The same God who is, and here with Moses, is today. In fact, like we said, the one God who's actually there is comprised of three persons, one being three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And we know that in history, God the Son stepped into the world. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect sacrifice for us. And he rose again to prove that God had accepted, God the Father had accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. His name is Jesus, right? The Lord of glory. Jesus said in John chapter 8, 58, he revealed his true identity. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, right? This is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is the same person who is being revealed to Moses. That, that phrase, I am, in John uh, eight fifty eight from Jesus is ego emi. It means I exist. Before Abraham was born, I exist, right? Um, Jesus is with us. He was then, he is now, he is forever. And so because of that, because Jesus is who he is, and we can know the truth about him, then his word to us is sure. When he says he's with us, he is. When he says he doesn't change, he, he doesn't. When he says he has power sufficient for you, he does. When he says he offers you to walk with him in righteousness through Christ, he means it. And so I pray that we will put our hope in the Lord. Psalm 9 verse 10 says, And those who know your name put their trust in you, O Lord, Yahweh. You have not forsaken those who seek you. So here's the, the end today. In transitions of life, of from blessing to difficulty, from pleasure to harsh living, who are you trusting, man? And is the person that you're trusting worthy of that trust? And if you're not trusting Yahweh, the I am, who? who, who? Like, Jesus, like Peter told Jesus, Lord, where, where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But thankfully, he does indeed have them.